And I spent a lot of time with my grandfather. I mean, he used to come pick me up in his pickup and away we went. And, you know, and I spent hours and hours and hours in that pickup with him as a young child. I mean, I was small. I was standing up on the pickup seat, going around the ranch, uh, listening to him give the guys work in hell. And, you know, he didn't hold back because I was there, let me tell you. I'm Chris Howsworth, a grain originator and accountant living in Pocahontas, Iowa. And you are listening to the Vance Crow Podcast. Welcome back to the podcast. I'm glad you're here. Today is a special interview with a slow-talking retired rancher named Mike Comston. Mike was one of the very first people to join the Articulate Ventures Network. And as you'll hear, when I first met him, I thought, ah, this is kind of an older guy. He just wants to fill his time by joining the network. I have no idea what role he will play. And he has turned into a central figure of the entire network. He is always there to participate in speaking gyms, to uh, talk about his thoughts during Circular Firing Squad, and really to provide feedback and insight that I don't know anyone else can give like he can give. Today's conversation is so interesting. We talk about the inner voice that we have in our heads. We talk about death and what it's like to be looking at the mistakes you've made in the past. He talks about his wife and the religion that they have built together and how they've stayed together and mistakes he's made along the way. Mike really gave of himself during this conversation and the entire thing gets better and better and better the longer we talk. So I hope that you find this to be an interesting conversation. And if you want to meet people like Mike and have the opportunity to engage with people that will give you real feedback, that will give ideas that you do not yet have and will participate with you through book clubs and movie nights, then consider joining the Articulate Ventures Network by going to network.articulate.ventures. We talk about the network a few times in the podcast today, and it's one of those things that you may have a little voice in the back your head that says, hey, this might help me. This might make it easier for me to accomplish this or give me a chance to meet other people like I know I've been wanting to do. And so if that voice is speaking to you, I hope you'll go check it out and join and become a member. That address again is network.articulate.ventures. Thanks so much for joining me. And I am looking forward to going and talking with my man, Mike Compton. Mike Compton, welcome to the podcast. Nice to be here, Vance. So you are a retired rancher, and you were actually, before the show got started, you were telling me the difference between rancher and farmer as kind of the colloquial difference between East and West in the U.S. What is the difference between a farmer and a rancher? Well, the rancher is, uh, by the accepted definition in the West anyway, is the idea that you have livestock and uh, crop production uh, combined, uh, and they go together in some kind of symbiotic relationship, generally. Uh, farming is restricted just to those that uh, do crop production. So you are a retired rancher and uh, a member of the Articulate Ventures Network. And when you first joined, I thought, ah, here's a, you know, kind of an older guy. We'll see how well he participates, if he can keep up. But by no means are you keeping up. You're actually setting the pace. You're the first guy to buy a VR headset. You're the first guy to show up to meetings and kind of push the envelope. So where in the world did you come from, and uh, how is retirement treating you? 
Well, uh, it's really been my life to be out front. Uh, I wanted to be out there as a leader, uh, do things first. Uh, was always encouraged to do that. I think the trust I uh, developed in as a small per- child growing up uh, had a lot to do with it. Uh, in in uh, following in the footsteps of my uh, grandparents and also my parents. Uh, you know, they they did things. They were proactive, uh, not afraid to venture across the uh, a stream carefully. Uh, they, you know, usually check to see how deep the water was. They just didn't dive in. But I think I have a little more of that dive in attitude. And uh, I still have it. I think I'm a little bit surprised I still have it at my age. But uh, it, it's, uh, it keeps me going and it's inspiring so what is your age? How old are you? I will be 74 years old uh, on the 30th of November. And, and when, uh, you, when you look back on, uh, let's say when you were my age, 39, did you imagine you would be who you are 40 years later when you're in your 70s, 30 years later? No, not really. Um, actually, you know, when I was your age, 39 years old, uh, we were about to make a major change in uh, – uh, our ranching operation because uh, we got caught in the uh, ag prices of the 80s. Uh, it was very difficult economically, and uh, actually, that period of time, 39, 40 years old, uh, we li- we sold a lot of uh, what we had as far as ag holdings, and uh, it was a big transition. And I made, you know, changed literally uh, my life as far as what I was doing on a daily basis, as well as going outside and getting uh, work uh, outside and off the family operation. You know, the farm crisis... I didn't crisis... imagine I'd be where I was. You know, I, I couldn't foresee where I am today. Uh, you know, I, I, I never really thought about it that much. I just have taken, as, as life has given me challenges along the way, uh, concentrated on moving forward, uh, picking something that was uh, interesting and something I was capable to do and pursuing it uh, totally and completely, uh, you you know, in order to support my family and and also to be uh, personally satisfied. When you look back on uh, who you were when you were 39 or, or even younger in your 20s, are you the person that you thought you would be? I mean, like, did you did you meet the expectations that the voice in the back of your mind had for you? Yes, I did. Uh, I, I actually did. I I don't remember. At least I don't have a recollection of feeling like I I hadn't accomplished generally what I had set out to do. Uh, and have disappointment as far as uh, self-disappointment in that it was created by my lack of uh, concentration or uh, setting goals, uh, having the values of trust and, and and so forth to accomplish what I that little voice told me I needed to do or wanted to do. Uh, that's. That's just the feeling I had as a, as a young person. I was always very 
had set objectives and goals and, and they continually moved as I had reached the ones that were set, you know, for short term, medium term, long term. Uh, they were always there. I always had those goals. They were set in that little voice in, in the back of my head, uh, you know, was telling me, uh, keep going, keep going, keep going. Uh, there were plenty of obstacles uh, along the way. Don't, you know, don't, I'm not trying to say it wasn't difficult. Um, and sometimes, you know, you had to pick a new, different route up the mountain, so to speak, to get to where you wanted to go. You know, lately I've been thinking a lot about um, that I have this sensation that I could always be getting better. I could always tighten down my schedule more. I could always be more present. And and uh, I recently heard somebody talking about how that can become a vice in and of itself, that that the idea that you are not enough or that you could be doing better uh, ends up taking away from the present moment. And I really struggle with this idea because I know I could be doing more in the world. And the only way to get myself out of the position of stopping or the, you know, the just general inertia of whichever direction I'm going in. And then on the other hand, I find myself being discontent, always imagining that in the future it will be better. Is this something you've like struggled with balancing? Yes, fantastically, I have because uh, I go through those periods where I, I do beat myself up, uh, in that I we, I want to do more. How could I do more? How could I how could I make things better? Uh, especially along the, along the lines of, of more, uh, a more worldly view. Uh, you know how how can we uh, improve our, our society as a whole? How can we um, spread knowledge and, and, and wisdom, I think, and understanding uh, so that we, we maintain uh, at least a desire in a, in a society to learn and, and go out there and to seek truth rather than accept that which is uh, repeated continuously and loudly uh, that seems to be what people grab onto. Um, I've, I've seen that build over actually the last 50 years of my life. Uh, it started in the 60s, early 70s, I think, when it became, at least in my life, that's the period it started in when, um, you know, I, I, I guess it's kind of the stand up, speak out thing. It reminds me of the the person uh, that jumps on a soapbox in Hyde Park and gives a speech, uh, you know, that, that gets up there and and no matter what it is, and, and the crowds got larger in our society and they became more, uh, I think they became lazy in a way. I don't know if that's the right word, but they started to accept these things and, and develop some kind of a comfort for it, whether it was really true or if it was some wild idea. And in this idea that, you know, I think in one of your previous podcasts, one of the people brought out the idea that, uh, you know, they people were looking for something to grab onto and gave them a reason to be alive or a reason to live. And so we end up with these uh, fragmented uh, conditions within a society. Uh, we've seen great examples of that lately, and 
uh, I know myself and uh, it troubles me and I want to do things and you know that our network the network is 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 a very powerful uh, concept uh, I struggle with the idea of and I know you've discussed it and it's been discussed within the network how big how big how big can we get how many people can we get involved and still have be as effective as it is so that we have this free and open transfer of ideas the ability to criticize uh, each other with respect and to discuss it and discuss our differences and and uh, understand why we are different uh, and sit back uh, when we get through with what some of our sessions and really analyze what a wonderful thing is that we have differences that we don't have the monotony of of, of acceptance and confirmation of one ideal. I, I agree with that so deeply. And when the Articulate Ventures Network got started and we were just kind of like, well, what what will be the value of this place that's different than just having a Facebook group or some other medium where we can all get together? And the thing that emerged that I really didn't understand people would value as much as we as everybody does, including myself, is real feedback. I think we've moved into a place in society where conflict is to be avoided except for by the most extreme people, the ones that are willing to fight and scream, kind of repeat the same mantras that you were talking about. And because everybody else that's not on those poles doesn't want to have that level of conflict, we then get into a cycle where you need conflict in order that you have feedback that tells you, hey, the thing that you're doing, it's it could be improved. It could uh, have some some of the edges rubbed off or maybe you need to reset the whole frame. But because we're so conflict averse in our PC society that people are wandering around and they go days, weeks, months, maybe even years without anybody really listening to them because you know if you can't give somebody feedback, you generally don't listen to them. Yeah, I, I, I totally agree. It's, uh, it's, I mean, the network has exceeded my highest expectations and uh, I, I, I see nothing but good to come in the future. Uh, we all seem to be uh, expanding it, testing the, uh, the limits that we have on, on week to week, uh, that they're not stationary, they're not stagnant, they're moving. Uh, we've, we are, as a group and as individuals, are not afraid to explore uh, outside of what, what has been accepted last week. Uh, that maybe we can push it a little farther this week and, uh, you know, and, and see what happens. Uh, so far, we haven't, you know, at least I haven't experienced any real adversity. I, I don't think, I haven't noticed that anyone, uh, I don't know if adversity even enters into this network, man. You know what I'm saying? That I, That concept of adversity, I don't think so. When you think back in your life uh, about the feedback that you were given that had the most impact on you, who were the people that were saying things that hurt initially, but actually they were right? Uh, the primary ones were family members. 
they were the the alpha males of the group. Uh, you know, they were older German heritage, strong jawed, intense uh, individuals. Uh, but some, for some reason, they also exhibited the qualities of compassion, caring, and love. And when you combine those with the intensity and the demanding nature of, of expecting nothing but the best from the person that you're teaching and to encourage them to explore the cosmos, so to speak, and and to to let them know that you will be there if they are exploring and they get into an area where they discover that they are fearful or feel insecure and and you you know push but but still hold hold the safety net behind them so that they are they become more and more and more productive and more and more educated and and the only thing that I know that that created uh, in something that I still have and when I analyze my own virtues or uh, you know virtues that I live by and so forth is is trust. I the the trust that I have was taught or learned or acquired. I'm not sure how it all came about, but uh, that has been the one thing that has caused me more discontent and more disappointment in that I had too much trust in people. Whoa. I did not expect you to say that. That is super interesting. What do you mean by that? Well, uh, getting into business deals without, by trusting people that I had been in contact with for a period of years prior to getting into a, a business arrangement with them, and, and to my own fault, uh, not making sure that I separated that relationship in in making business deals and having uh, legal agreements and documents and everything to cover everything that may could should or did happen, uh, and it it burnt me and burnt me hard. But the the what bothers me today is I didn't learn the first time, I didn't learn the second time, and I have this feeling now that I might do it again because it's not something I seem to be able to recognize and control. Meaning that you find what people say to be uh, sincere on its face and you take it for what it's worth and you haven't been able to transcend it. Is that what you mean? Yes. It's really interesting that you're talking about this because one of the things that my brother impressed on me uh, was that when you start a business arrangement with somebody, one of the most important things is not how will we separate the money that we make, but how will we ultimately separate ourselves when we decide we're not happy with this? 
And that has been one of those things. It's a little bit like uh, going to your fiance and being like, I want a prenup, right? And in marriage, it's a different thing, right? You don't want an exit plan. But with a business partner, that's what makes it different than a marriage is that you can establish an, an exit path. And for me, that's been one of those activities that I've done regularly, uh, but always been reluctant to do it. But it's just been a, a matter of wisdom that somebody else gave me that I execute. You know, I totally agree with it. You know, that what Ben said, uh, you know, that that uh, that's what was needed. How to, how to exit, how to how to dissolve uh, something that had been created. Um, you know, and, and truthfully, I can say, I I don't have enough confidence in myself to, to uh, right now to say that I wouldn't do it again. I think it's highly unlikely, you know, that, that I would, but, uh, you know, I, I some of the things that have happened have been a little bit shocking in the last, 15 months of my life, but, uh, you know, and I'll say probably in, because I was involved in so many family businesses and trusted family members in, in, in other ways and actually in, in business or transactions that although I trusted family as a young person and growing up and, and created and develop some of my basic values and, and qualities that I have today. There are family members that are probably the least trustworthy of anyone you'll ever come in contact with. So one of the things that you've provided in the network is people, there are a lot of entrepreneurs and there are a lot of people that are uh, leaders within their family businesses, maybe not with all the power or all the, the, the purse strings, but yet they're expected to make things happen with their family business. What do you think is important for people universally to recognize about family businesses? And not just the negatives of who you can't trust, but but generally, how is a family business different than a, than an, than a business partner business? Well, I think uh, for me, it was the idea that the respect uh, gets in the way sometimes. Uh, respect for each other as family members. Um, the levels of respect, I at least myself, I had for family members exceeded those I had for those outside of the family. I mean, there's that's just how it is. When you you know you develop that because of the uh, for many reasons as you're growing up or or working together, uh, and. You know, it, it, it makes things more difficult. Um, you you want to make decisions. I always had a hard time saying no to my father in particular because my dad was a, a lot like me and a lot not like me, both. Uh, in some things, he, was, he liked to do new things, push the limits, but he, he also... Um, he wasn't as tenacious about that onset. Uh, you know, he, he never attacked it with the intensity I did. Um, but he never wanted to compromise with the rest of us. Uh, 
uh, it, it was his way or the highway, and it made it very, very difficult on me and extremely difficult for my mom because um, for the last mm, 30 years, especially of my life before he passed away, uh, he and I were at each other all the time. Uh, we didn't agree, and, and you know, it, it, it got, so it didn't happen as often because I got away from the family business as much as I could and did things on the outside, and, uh, you know, in, in the end, we had uh, signed a treaty, and I, you know, pretty much was his caregiver for the last five years of his life. And, and Whoa, and, uh, so you went from dissolving a business to becoming his caregiver? Yes. How was that psychologically? Uh, for me, very difficult for a while. You know, because I, I had times caring for him when I, you know, it was very emotional for me. Uh, it would hit me, you know, uh, and I would, I would feel a bit sad about it because I, I would realize that there was things that I had missed that I could have been part of. But, uh, you know, I, I, I was more concerned with the idea that he never really understood me, you know, that, that his day of death, he never understood me as a person, who I really was, what my core values were, what drove me, what, what, you know, he didn't, he just wasn't a person that could wrap his head around uh, the me, uh, you know, because I was so much different uh, than than him in 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 some ways. You know, he 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 was a World War II veteran, and, and I mean, I'm gonna say you know that he when he had come back from the war. I mean, I wasn't alive, of course, but um, I was told my mom told me that it really changed my dad a lot, and my dad did not like conflict at all he probably suffered from ptsd you know uh, it was not something that the world war ii vets that he was even recognized uh, you know the things that happened it's it's so interesting to me that you say this about the there were values that you held that your dad didn't hold and that was one of the things that separated you two from knowing each other, for him, from him knowing you at least. Where, if your father wasn't the one that gave you these values, where did they come from and why do you think he couldn't see them? Well, they came from my grandfather on my mother's side. And, and uh, they, he was very different then that side of the family was very different than my dad's side of the family. Uh, they were, that's where they came from. And I spent a lot of time with my grandfather. I mean, he used to come pick me up in his pickup and away we went. And, you know, and I spent hours and hours and hours in that pickup with him as a young child. I mean, I was small. I was standing up on the pickup seat, going around the ranch, uh, listening to him give 
the guys work in hell and you know he didn't hold back because i was there let me tell you you know I, <laughs> I, you know it was i i smiled about it because i had a good time and so you know here was here was i this little five six seven eight ten year old boy that you know had built up this idea that he was one tough jose just like grandpa you know and i was going to stand up and, and stand up for myself and you know, I was going to, I was going to, I emulated my grandfather. That's what it was. And as you look back and think um, that your father didn't understand you, do you think that that was something that you could have explained? You could have uh, gotten him to understand, or was this just a, a riddle that would never be solved? I, I, I definitely think I could have worked on it more and spent time addressing it, uh, which I did not do ever. Uh, and that's in retrospect. I, I mean, I I never even thought about that until um, literally after he was gone. So it, it's just recently in the last few years. I mean, this you know, goes along with the concept that uh, is really important to me. And so in the network next, e each month we do a shared experience where we decide, hey, we're going to all work on this one thought that revolves around whatever the theme of the month is. And the theme for next month is liberating a mentor. And, and we're going to be talking about how the Western concept of finding a mentor is you find somebody that's got all kinds of wisdom, you go sit at their feet, and then they tell you that wisdom and you move on. But in reality, I think that the mentor-mentee relationship is a two-way street and that in many ways, somebody coming to sit at the feet of a mentor is doing a service because that mentor then gets to revisit the things in their life that they weren't able to identify when they were in the present moment. And rather than have that be wasted uh, in the sense of, well, I wish I could have done something about it, but I can't. Now you're passing this wisdom on to younger people because I am so afraid of waking up 5, 10, 15 years from now and being like, why didn't I recognize that as important and the only way to get woken up is to have somebody mentor you in my perspective, which is what I see you as. Well, yeah. And I, and I think um, mentoring is huge, you say, and has huge effect on people. But I have observed something that's happened in the last month with a person that um, I viewed as a young person, uh, less than 30 years old that I had a lot of respect for and, and uh, saw going places in a grand way. Um, and this individual changed like mentors. Uh, and I, I, I mean, I'm looking at this from a distance. And that mentor, boomed this person into someone that is completely different in that I don't like at all. Whoa. Okay. No, I mean, just extracted the good things about her and put new ideas 
new values and new thoughts into her mind that she is now using and 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 it has changed changed her so, her so much that it's really ugly uh, and it, it was shocking to me. It's something I never thought about. But how, what the huge effect of mentor is. And, and you know, it, it's back to the old idea. I, was, I thought about it in the realm of what I, what I was talking about, trust. When you trust someone deeply, you are vulnerable. And the vulnerabilities that a person has can use positively and also negatively. You know, you're totally right. And that is actually something I had never really grappled with. I've been extremely fortunate, I think, uh, to find mentors that were not trying to overwrite the software that I already had on my mind. They were adding addendums or or updates or, right. or different things. But, uh, <laughs> you know, you're exactly right that if, if you build that relationship of trust, you are letting somebody write on your software. And the challenge is if you don't let anybody in enough to write the software in your brain or at least give you an update, then uh, the only model you can use to explore the world is the one you already have. But I had never considered the negative potential there. Well, you're exactly right. I mean, it's, it's the old adage you talk about rewriting our software. Yes. Uh, you know, when you look at that in, in as far as modeling, computer modeling and those kind of things, building models, uh, you know, garbage in, garbage out, you know, it, it, it's, it's what happens. I mean, it's in the same sense, it's the same as it is a, as a database or a data bank. Um, you know, if it's full of trash, you're going to get more trash. But if, if it's full of good solid data, you're going to get more good solid data. Which then that brings me to another concept that I'm, I'm very curious about your take on because you've had so much longer of a span to be thinking about these things. What do you think is news to you? You know, like what is it that is information that you like say, hey, I need this information in order to operate in the world. Are you watching the major news outlets? Are you reading newspapers? How do you think about what is news? Uh, presently, I'm having a very difficult time with that. Uh, I have less trust in network news for sure. Uh, I'm having more and more difficulty uh, separating news in a sense that finding absolutely pure news, I'm not sure I know where to get it, Vance. I, I really am having a hard time right now. I, I can't tell you one source where I can go get real and feel comfortable that I've got honest news is that different than the past did you feel like you yes, had I good mean, you know and i don't know if it was any better in the past or it's back to that old word trust again that i had trust 
in the past that I don't have today. You know, I, I, I you know, it seemed more straightforward. Uh, you know, I, my best example, I think, is uh, some of the reporters that covered the Vietnam War, uh, which was a big deal in my lifetime. Uh, affected my generation hugely. Um, and, and some of the reporters I back then, and I don't even remember all their names, probably did, I thought did a really good job. And it was something I, I wanted to see because, you know, I had a lot of friends over there and, and uh, knew where they were and what they were, what part of the country they were in over there and, and what was going on. But uh, at that point in time, I trusted, trusted that news those new passes. But from that point on, it seemed to be a slow, continual evolution to more opinionated uh, rhetoric rather than news. I mean, news was the planes hit the Twin Towers and we watched them crash to the ground. You know, that was news. You know, pure, ugly news. But that is one of the biggest events. I was sitting on the edge of my bed getting ready to go to a conference in Whitefish, Montana with a bunch of dairy uh, mar marketing regulators. Uh, long, far away from home um, when that came on TV and I sat there and watched, uh, watched what was going on and watched the second plane hit and you know, that was that was pure unrestricted news. Now to find that on a daily basis, very, very difficult. You know, I, I yeah, and you had made an observation the other day that uh, blew my mind. We had watched Hunt for the Red October as a movie night, and you made the comparison of the Cold War, uh, where we're at like a nuclear uh, detente with uh, the Soviet Union or Russia, and, uh, and COVID. And I really, I was shocked by that when you first said it. But the more that I've thought about things through that prism... It really does feel that way, that politicians use it to say, you should be afraid, but be afraid from this angle. And then another politician comes in and says, no, that's not the angle to be afraid. Be afraid from this angle. And all of it almost uh, equals, this is why you should give my party power to be able to fight this existential dread that you have out there on the horizon. Yeah, and you know, that that's very discomforting right now to me and to others in the, in my generation uh, that very discomforting because we see these similarities uh, that, you know, that, that we have this uh, mind manipulation going on, um, you know, and it's troubling because, you know, when you look back to the the generation before, in uh, the idea that the, the Hitler's machine and, and propaganda machine, and you know, I 
I read a lot of books about the Third Reich and how that all came about in my earlier days, 30, 40 years ago. Um, and still look back as a reference on some of the things that happened. Uh, and, and, you know, the young people, those young Nazis that were so wanted to be a part of it so much and you see the old films of them all cheering and singing and you know they were they felt like they were enlightened and, and you know they they thought they were doing good and it made them feel powerful and you know that was cultivated by a political movement and you know we see these struggles with with the the different political movements we got going on, have going on in the world right now in the developed countries, especially. And it is scary because we, I, I don't think we know today which way this seesaw is going to tip. Yeah, movements like political movements are so scary because they show the herd like nature of human beings. And like you said, when the when the group is getting together in a herd, it maybe starts off that they they come together because they're afraid of something, but then when they start moving as a way of like, well, we have this truth, and we need to move that forward to help people get away from the thing that they're afraid of or the thing that is causing all these problems for us, and you start seeing that mob move forward. The faster they move, the scarier it is, and just like you said, like. Those people that are involved in a movement, and when I say those people, it could just as easily be me. I'm not. I'm not putting myself above uh, the the fray of human behavior. They feel so good about what they're doing. It's yeah. it's no different than a religious movement when you found Jesus or you found some savior. It's no different. You have that. Those all that wiring is already in your head. You know, you're exactly right, and I'm. It just brought something back uh, to me, uh, to experience my wife and I had uh, when we were uh, working on a project in, in France uh, on the weekend, two different weekends. One was a, a trip to Taze. Are you familiar with Taze? Where the, it's a religious place where the primarily Catholic, where all the young people go. and It's, uh, it's a big deal. It's very spiritual and so forth. It's a, it's very upbeat. But anyway, we went there and visited there, and and you know, I did we did some praying and so forth, and and experienced it not when there was huge numbers of people there, but people, young people from all over the world go there. Um, and then on another weekend, we go to this farm festival we were looking at, and we were with uh, a French young French person and another American young lady and and uh, we were went to thought let's go this this weekend so we're going down these little narrow streets where a Volkswagen Golf is about all you could get down through it uh, you know that's what they're like and, and uh, we get to this farm festival and we're there and we're you know think wow this is this is a little different you know what's what's going on here and we you know, we're there an hour or so and realize that we are right in the middle of a communist party rally. 
<laughs> what is that like? What, you, what is going on that tells farm you? Festival, you know, it was so bizarre. Uh, I can't really describe it. Uh, very upbeat, very positive. You know, everybody's excited and singing and dancing and. But everything about it was around, you know, as as you leave the dust off the top of the table, you realize what was underneath there, you know, strange, strange, that's all I can say. Yeah, and for an American to to look at people singing and dancing and happily uh, you know, heralding the ideas of communism, when you juxtapose right. that about what happened in the Soviet Union and millions upon mil- you know, 60 million people dead as a result uh, of trying yeah. to enact that into the world, it's it's like going to what would feel like the equivalent of a witchcraft, uh, you know, like a seance or something. Right. You know, from this American point of view, you know, that's that's what we felt like. And, you know, once we realized that we just, you know, we couldn't get out of there fast enough. It was, you know, all of a sudden you felt like, wow, maybe we're not very secure here. You know, realize you're pretty small and you're, you're just this little, little person that, you know, could disappear in the alleys of some little country town in France. You know, when they realize that you, somebody views you as a I. I mean, I know this feeling entirely when, when, uh, when you finally realize when you're out traveling that you've gotten past the sheen of tourism and you've gotten into the place where you are somewhere where people may not want you and you are not a part of them. And it's one of those things that when you're just a tourist, you're just traveling around on your, uh, you know, over a week, it maybe happens every once in a while you stumble into a dark alley. But when you're living somewhere, you can get this feeling of like, oh, I know this. I know these people. I know this place. And you can stumble into places where all of a sudden you realize I am insignificant. I could be gone and no one will come looking for me. I just disappear and maybe there would be some kind of inquiry but i'd already be gone and that's a sensation that doesn't happen when i'm living in st louis missouri well yeah and i'll give you another example that my wife and i lived through uh we were traveling in south america and we were with a group of uh seed stock cattle producers in buenos aires argentina and uh, anyway, we went busloads out to this livestock auction yard, and we're attending an auction there. And my wife and I, you know, being part of a group, but individuals within the group, got to talking to some young people, which we always wanted. We, I'm still drawn to young people, as you know, and like to talk to them. So we're off talking to them and. Uh, having great conversations and learning a lot more than just the barista kind of a thing. So anyway, we get to looking around and there is nobody from our group to be seen. And we're about 60 miles from our hotel out in the country. 
And at that time, there was armed guards on every intersection in Argentina. It was a little bit, uh, you know, during one of their periods of unrest and change of leadership and all the other great things that, you know, inflation was something like 1,400% and you couldn't carry enough money to buy a Big Mac, you know, in a, in, in a suitcase. But anyhow, so here we are, way out in the country. No car, no way to get back. Don't have a clue how to get back. No cell phones. No, no cell phones. So they load us in this Volkswagen and they'll say, we'll take you back. So we knew what our hotel was. So we're in this car and we lived in the back seat of this little Volkswagen Golf and, and, uh, and my wife and I were going down the road and going down the road. And I was whispering, like, you know, we have no idea which direction we're going. We don't know whether we're going farther away or closer to town, you know, just like you said. Luckily, it was all great. And they were good young people, but it was risky. Yeah, there are moments in my life where I've had those revelations where you're in a cab and you're I, I've been having a good conversation with the cabbie and all of a sudden I realize well, I've actually told this guy quite a bit about myself without realizing that I don't actually know what he wants or what his intents are. Or one of my experiences was I went to a cricket match and uh, I was having a great time and I had met these guys that were really worldly and they wanted to to go to another bar and so we do and uh they're buying me drinks and i am just having a blast being like oh they must like me so much they keep buying me drinks and there was some voice in the back of my head that was like hey maybe you ought to quit drinking with these people you don't know and i remember just being like i need to leave right now and I've always looked back on that time and been like, ah, maybe that would have been a story worth telling. It would have been fun. But I promptly left because I was like, something's not right here. And I always wonder what, what would have happened had I not done that. But I have this sneaking suspicion that they were up to no good. You know, and that's, that brings up another point is, you know, uh, Wise people listen to that little voice inside of you. You know, I really believe that. I mean, it, it, it never, I've never been wrong when I listened. I've, I've almost 100% been wrong when I didn't listen to that inner voice. Yeah, and it's interesting to think about when that voice speaks to you, right? It's like in moments right. of danger. Sometimes it's in moments of ecstasy and happiness that's like trying to bring you back down. Do you have a way to be able to commune with that voice that we're talking about? Um, you know, I I used to argue with it. You know, and and say no, you're wrong, you're wrong. You know, in talking to that little voice, and it took a few whacks up inside the head to you know make me realize that I probably shouldn't be arguing with myself. You know, and you'd be a whole lot better off if you listened. And that was a bit of a of a monumental transition for me. Because uh, I probably spent 20 years in the arguing mode. 
it's interesting to think about why that voice feels distinct from you. You know what I mean? Like, I don't yeah. have control over that voice. I can't tell it what I want. I can't tell it what I want it to be getting me towards. I have no control over it. And yet it is only in me. So who the hell is that voice? Is it God? Is it the other half of me? Like, what is it? It's the, you know, I think it's the, it's the grand culmination of all your values. I think it's all your values, known and unknown, in that voice. That's an, that's a very interesting thought. That's a very interesting thought. And then the question becomes, you know, you encounter many, many values, right, throughout life. You could right, encounter right, the values right. that, that are not good for you to have. But it does seem like there is an intrinsic goodness in the voice. At least that's the way I, I maybe maybe that's thinking too highly of myself. But I feel like my voice has been able to discern the values I should have versus the values that I'm drawn to. I'd have to agree with that. I have to agree with that. And I, I never really thought of it that way, but I, I agree with that. It's the good. It, it's not, not just the values. It's the good values. Have you had to deal with um, addictions or vices that were difficult for you? Uh, smoking cigarettes. Oh, <laughs> I did that. <laughs> Why'd you Most start smoking? Uh, because my friends did, I think. I started when I was 17, 18 years old. And I quit when I was 70. Oh, man. Yeah. Are you worried there's a price to be paid with like lung cancer just sitting around the corner for you? Yeah, I, I mean, I go for a to a, a doctor and, and get examined every year and, and have a CT scan in my lungs. Uh, about ten years ago, there was a dark spot about the size of a dime in one of my lungs showed up in an x-ray and scared the hell out of me. And I didn't even quit then. I mean, that's how stupid I was. What prompted, I was. what prompted you to quit? You know, I, uh, I tried all the, all the, all the things, you know, that are supposed to help you. None of them work. The patches, the gum, the. Right. I mean, I would, you know, and then I thought, well, I'm gonna, I'm gonna use chewing uh, tobacco, so I'm, I've got a my lip full of Copenhagen and a cigarette in my mouth. So you know, that's <laughs> <it>. <laughs> I'm getting a double shot. But anyway, one day I just said, I'm quitting. I just quit. Boom. I said, no more. I'm gonna do this. I'm done. I'm, I'm gonna die. It's gonna kill me. It isn't yet. But it's going to, you know, and, and the, uh, anyway, I went, was going to the doctor. I, was, I had this appointment uh, uh, with the doctor because they thought I was having some problems with sleep apnea. Uh, my 
you know, family practitioners thought I needed to go and have that checked out, which I didn't. But then, you know, I go to the to the doctor and he says, well, you know, you're, you're starting to show signs of mild COPD, blah, blah, blah. You know, this is what you're going to do. And, you know, if you want to live long, buddy, you better quit. And today would be a good day. And it was a good day. That was it. I just quit. It's, you know, when you actually take the time to contemplate death, which is one of those things that I like avoid looking at, right? I, I, I look over here, right, I'll look right. over there, up or down. or, But when you contemplate death, it ends up for me not being as sad or as scary of an experience as, uh, as I initially think that it's going to be, right? It, it does something for truing whatever the things are in my life. Do, are you capable of thinking clearly or for a long period of time about your impending death? Oh, yes. You know, I, I, uh, I'm not afraid of it. Um, you know, and that's because of my Catholic religious beliefs, you know, and uh, I'm not a cradle Catholic. I was a convert. That I converted when you know I started dating my wife a long time ago, um, but anyway, and uh, really studied it and you know tried to catch up. Became a Catholic when it was uh, much more traditional and uh, Latin masses and carried my red missal around and you know all those things and women world little lace veil or on their head or a scarf and you know it was something that I really got into because it was a very regimented very strict uh, my wife was educated uh, in the Catholic schools all her life uh, actually wanted to be a nun went to the convent and saw the doors closed behind it and said Hell no, this is not what I want. <laughs> so, you know, it's, uh, but he's, he's just a very good person, too, and, and it helped me a lot. But anyway, where were we? Well, the Catholics, the Catholics have, because I grew up Catholic, and uh, and actually right now I've been attending Catholic Mass, not because I have some deep belief in God or think that I owe God, you know, a once a week punch card to get to mass, but because as I'm raising a child, I am really struggling with how will I create the software that gives her, her inner voice, her daemon, the values that I think are important. And I, I am afraid that if I try and do it without a church, I will have major problems. I see the flaws in using the church as the software uh, writing system, but I don't necessarily have another better way that trans transcends 2000 years of experience. And this is right here, what you're saying makes you not afraid of death, right? So it's an important thing to be considering uh, whether you should go or how does this help you align your values or what does it mean for when we die? You know, that I will say that the one thing that it makes me is, is I'm not fearful of death. I think that is the most important part of what I got out of 
my religion and still get out of my religion. You know, and, and going to mass virtually every Sunday and, you know, you know, and, and listening to a, a Catholic mass that's coming out of the heartland, you know, and, and on, on television, uh, it's fantastic. Good homily, something that's supportive, something to really think about. Uh, I think more so now that I'm older. Uh, I paid much more attention to, to it than I maybe did for the mid-period between my uh, period of becoming a Catholic. There was a, a, a lull, so to speak, somewhere in the middle that I wasn't quite as intense about uh, the religion itself. Uh, not any less a believer, but uh, just less a participant. So what do you think happens when you die? Well, I, I believe in reincarnation and in the spirit, uh, you know, ascend uh, into the heavens, and you know that that I will see and join my family there. And, and that's, you, that's, can you imagine this as architecture? Is this palaces is this a place covered with clouds is it um ethereal and there is no need for space you know i i imagine it to be a a, a peaceful humble simple plain um, environment you know no there's no dullness about it but there's no brightness it's in, in some area between there. And do you concern yourself with the thoughts of hell? Oh, yes. You know, and the people that I don't meet, and I hope I end up in heaven, uh, if I don't meet them in heaven, I'm going to be damn happy that those ones I don't see are in hell. <laughs> <laughs> and there's a few that I hope end up there or are already there, you know. It's interesting in life when you think about the the – one of the conclusions that I've come to is most of the people that I have the inclination to wish them to go to hell, I think they already, for the most part, are living in hell, right? Like if they've done something so egregious so as to have another soul out there wishing, you know, suffering upon them, then typically, not always, because it could be that the other person is off their rocker, but typically it's because you're not communicating, you're doing things that are distrustful, you are, you know, uh, stealing or breaking the, the what we think of as the, whether it's the 10 commandments from God, or just the 10 things that allow you to have better relationships with the people you're in contact with. And if you're breaking those rules, you typically are in hell, right? There's, there's not an alcoholic that is living in heaven, while, while, you know, in the gutter, it's just that they are in hell. Well, yeah, I mean, and there's people that, because of their deeds, are, you know, uh, living in hell. Uh, that inner voice is that we talked about, 
has turned on them. And they are being eaten up from the inside out. That's right. If I truly believe that. I And if you get uh, at crosswaves with that demon, with that voice that's telling you what to do, it's unrelenting. And you hear it all the time, which is why people then go get high or they get super drunk or they you know, try and have some adrenaline. I know for me, when I'm trying to drown that thing out, I, I am willing to use some pretty powerful substances to be able to make it so that that way I don't have to hear that voice. But I think that that is the path to hell. Yeah, I agree. I, I really agree. You know, and my... You know, my wife and I have been married for almost 54 years. We got married when we were very young, 20 years old. Um, But I will say that she has been my strongest team member, and I have strived to be her strongest team member. And I really believe that uh, now I, I realize it's something special that we have um, and have have enjoyed. Um, I'm not sure why and how it all came about. I mean, there were some rocky, rocky spots along the way. And I misbehaved myself along the way, too. Uh, you know, <laughs> You know, don't get me wrong. I I wasn't any any angel on a forever basis. You know, I I like to think I I'm a good person, although, uh, but I am far from perfect. What do you think you learned about um, marriage that men should know in order to have a fifty-some year odd relationship? I think the first thing is you can't be selfish and you can't, you know, you are now one, you and your wife are one and you have to maintain that focus. You can be individuals, but you can always come together and be one. And maintaining that balance on a daily, hourly, minute basis is very, very important. And you are not going to be able to do everything you want to as an individual. And they are not going to be able to. But in that true relationship, it's very important to support what your partner wants to do or believes in I mean you may not agree with it not at that moment but most likely if you have that commitment and attraction to your partner and it is strong enough you are best off supporting what they want I'm I'm totally with you on that. And one of the realizations that I've had in the last, I don't know, two years or so is that my wife's daemon, the inner voice that she has in her, 
that speaks up as like pecking at me at the things I should be thinking about or the things I should be doing is really valuable to learn from. And there's no one else that has as invested of a reason to make sure that I am upright as my wife. And I, I can see how couples could get sideways where they think, no, that person is keeping me from being the person that I want to be or that I could be. But you got to get that right. Because if you and the the thing that you said at the beginning, which I think is absolutely right, you are one and there is no escape valve. You have made the decision that you guys are together and you have to hold up your end of the bargain on on what that means for a commitment. But once you come to that uh, arrangement that you're not going to leave a whole new level of uh, interaction and support can can manifest that can never manifest between like we talked about earlier, business partners. Yeah, you know, and, and I could truly say that the periods of unrest uh, in uh, our relationship uh, were all my fault. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. I admit it. You know, this is my confession. You know, I confess. You know, and, you know, I... I I was a jerk a few times, you know, just an absolute jerk. You know, a, a men go through some, you know, strange things. Uh, you know, there's, uh, you know, face it. We're, we're going to forever walk down the street and glance over at that pretty woman. You know. It, it, that's just the male thing, male female thing, uh, you know. But you maintain the restraint and the understanding that yes, you can, you know, enjoy that without going further and without causing problems. You know, it, it it's just. It's not easy sometimes because if, if there's things going on at home, uh, you know, that, that maybe you, you've been in argument with your spouse or whatever, and then you start drifting and you're not listening to your inner voice and you maybe got a buddy or, you know, like you say, you're at the bar or whatever and having a few drinks and, you know, there's always, always, there's always temptation in all parts of our lives, as you know, man, it's everything we do. I mean, I'm sure there's temptations and days when I don't want to do this anymore. I don't want to do this network thing. I'm like, this day is so chaotic. I don't have time to do this, you know? And, and, and if you don't grab yourself and get back on the road, you're going to, you're going to keep drifting and pretty soon you're going to hit the shoulder and then you're going to roll the car, you know? Yeah, and and uh, it's interesting because I've been thinking about these two metaphors that uh, have come up on the podcast. One is the Cain and Abel. Is this uh, you know Cain killed Abel because Cain's sacrifices that he was making to God weren't good enough, and he got jealous of Abel's sacrifices, and instead of making the right sacrifices, he went over and killed his brother. And so there's that metaphor. And then you have the Mark Spiewak, the the running coach, who was a fascinating interview where right. he said, 
hey, a lot of our problems come down to a three quarters problem. It is that you're three quarters of the way through the race. And if you could keep yourself going hard, then you will be happy with your thing at the end. And so when you start talking about a marriage or any of the the work that we do that's difficult, you always have to have these two models to say, is this a Cain and Abel problem? I'm not making the right sacrifice and I should quit doing what I'm doing and do something else. Or is this a three quarters problem? I just need to keep going and eventually it'll get easier and there'll be people cheering for me at the end. Does that resonate with what you're saying? Yes, absolutely. You know, I enjoyed that, you know, the running coaches comments and podcasts. It was, it was, it rang my bell. I mean, you know, my wife and I discussed it. We watched those things together. I mean, it's, it's interesting because we watch them. We go to, we go to, lay in our bed and turn on our TV and and sit there before we go to sleep and they say, okay, let's just Vance have a new podcast. Well, we throw it up there and we we listen to the podcast and and then maybe we back it up and listen to this and back it up and listen to that. And uh, then we discuss it and uh, then we go to sleep. Oh, man, there's no higher compliment than that to me. That's awesome. Well, it is. It's just our time, you know. You're you're you can focus, and uh, you know you. It, it's really nice, <laughs> you know. Mike, I. Uh... I, I think we're going to wrap up here, but I want to invite you on again right. and again. This has been a really good conversation, but you know, it, as always, I really like asking the question on the way out with certain people. What is your Peter Thiel paradox? The thing that you believe that very few people would agree with you um, on what, what's something you believe about the world? Well, I, I have, I have, firmly believe that everyone has abilities that they have not discovered yet. And I think it's, it's my job to teach people or to encourage them to look for who they really are. And I, I, I truly believe that, you know, I don't think everybody's going to agree with me that there's, a lot of hidden ability out there that isn't expressed and but i'm adamant about it i just get adamant that it's there you know i think that one of the things i have observed in the way you interact in the network is people uh put things out into the world like miriam for example Miriam Hoffman is a member of, of the Articulate Ventures Network, and she um, not only did she just win a national FFA officer role, but she's also giving a speech uh, in a few months for her college. And she put forward her talk, and she got done, and you were like, it wasn't good enough. I know you could do better. And what I think most people would anticipate by saying something like that to another person is that that other person will cry or start looking sad or be like, never mind. But instead, Miriam lit up and she's like taking down notes and trying to make changes and asking questions. And like when you see someone like you have that impact on another person, you realize, wait, I could do that, too. I could provide feedback that would allow them to get better. And uh, so I see you living out the thing that you're saying you believe that other people don't agree with. I think, And I think that that is. The, the mark of a, of a real person, a real man, is to live out the thing that they believe even though other people don't agree with them. 
And and by doing that, you're a very content. You become very content. I I, I can truly say that the the network has brought me to a place in my life that I have never experienced this level of contentment. Whoa! All right. I love hearing you that. You know, it, it's it's something that, and it's so strange because when I decided to become a member, you know, you were advertising it or asking for uh, the first 15 of us or whatever for your test. And uh, my wife and I, you know, watched the podcast and they said, well, what do you think? What do you think? What do you think? All these young people with all their great ideas. And, you know, I'm not sure I'm mentally even in the same game. Uh, or, or capable uh, wisdom-wise of even communicating with all you super smart young people. But anyway, and the good I thought, you know, we listened to each other and says, oh, what the hell? Let's give it a whirl. And I did. And it's been, you know, because there's always been a spot that never got filled that I wanted to do exactly what I'm able to do within this network. And it's strange. It was there's just a little was a little block in the side of the building that I never got to put in place, but now I have, and it's it made me feel very content. Well, we are all better because uh, you're there, man, and I am really glad you were willing to sit down and have such an open discussion about life and religion and the voice and communism and being lost and vices. Oh. This was exceptional. Well, I wandered a bit, I think, but anyway, it's been fun. Well, Mike, we'll see you in the network. Thanks so much for coming on. Thank you. (laughs) 